Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience-requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days, you will receive daily emails with micro-tasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash business plans with an S to register. The mind sponsor for today is upcoming podcast series, Personality Sleuths. Personality Sleuths will be co-hosted by Dr. J. Galen Buckwalter, whose career includes being the founding chief science officer of eHarmony and me, leveraging my experience as a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. We will analyze personality using a speech-based proprietary AI algorithm, along with the clues evident in social media and the popular press. Each episode will dissect the life of someone famous who gained the trust of many before becoming notorious for duping people, committing a crime, or losing exorbitant amounts of money, all while the clues were there all along in how they spoke. Tune in soon. On this episode, we have Paul Orlando. Paul was born and raised in upstate New York, near Rochester. He attended Cornell University, where he majored in history and studied Mandarin Chinese, leading to fluency after a study abroad program in China. He started a corporate career in telecommunications and then moved to consulting after getting his MBA at Columbia. He migrated to Hong Kong for a few years and ran a startup accelerator program there. He currently is a professor at USC and runs their accelerator program. He's also been a published author with articles in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Forbes, and TechCrunch. He also hosts a blog entitled Unintended Consequences. Paul, thank you so much for being on our show. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Asim. No, it's really great to have you here. I've marveled about your career for some time since we became friends and uh, have been interacting uh, with one another. So um, it's great to be able to to share that with the with the audience here today. So so do really appreciate your taking the time. Um, I, I always like to go back and start from the very beginning. And so if uh, memory serves, you were born and raised on the East Coast. That is right. That is right. Yeah, I, I grew up in New York, but uh, the other New York, so, <laughs> not the city. Uh, I grew up far, far out of the city, far upstate. Um little town you know picturesque kind of small town which um interestingly uh, i'm not sure maybe uh, how interesting this is for your listeners here but um you know is a place that had uh, a lot of uh entrepreneurial businesses around it you know businesses that oh, became okay. also, but has been in the past couple generations on like a downward trend so oh. um this is, you know, close to where IBM started, you know, Eastman okay. Kodak, you know, started. Uh, oh, so you weren't too, too far from Rochester. Exactly. Yeah. A little south of Rochester. Okay. So, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's always interesting. You have pockets uh, like this all over the U.S. Um, I suppose when the, I mean, not only nationally, but, you know, globally, when everything was a little less connected, you know, you had um, little regional industries that would oh, work kind of, you know, a whatever, a radius of a few hundred miles, say. Um, 
and that worked for a while and then it you know stopped working you know so well so yeah so the the place that i grew up um you know it's uh been on a you know a negative population trend you know uh, certainly as long as i have known it um yeah. but uh yeah so I, did grow up on the East Coast. That's my long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect history. I mean, there was one point when that area had, like, I think, the highest per capita, maybe not the highest per capita income, but I think the home values per square foot were the highest at some point. Um, and this was in the uh, early 1900s. Um, and, um, yeah, a lot of wealth uh, being created there. I mean, part of the industrialization of the U S yeah. 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 It's, um, it, and it is interesting just like how, how things change or what drives the economy changes. Um, where, where I grew up, it was, so it was like the, the location of the second railway in New oh. York, you know, okay. uh, for what's worth. Um, and it was a place where um, early on, so this is like early 1800s, you know, for you know, settlements, uh, it was um, one of the big industries there was uh, lumber. And okay. so they would up, they'd have like lumber that would be floated down the Susquehanna River. And that was like the, right. make those rafts with the logs and like you know, float it down to the Chesapeake Bay. Um, yep. But uh, yes, we, we've gone on a, a very historical uh, tangent, or like I mean, I, I I like this stuff, so I can I can. You know, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, Susquehanna River going through Pennsylvania. I have fond memories of it, having studied in in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, unintended consequences. We could uh, argue, yeah. <laughs> which is going to. Uh, be a, a, a pun that will go full circle uh, towards the end when the rest of the audience catches up. Um, but uh, what was it like growing up? What were you excited about? What were you into? Was it uh, books, uh, sports, music, comic books? What was your, where did you spend your time? Definitely well, loved reading, uh, loved music, still do love music. But um, yeah, one of the most enjoyable uh, things I did growing up and also in college was uh, play music. So I had a number of bands that I had, you know, nice. high school, college, you know, after college. Wow. Uh, what was your instrument? Saxophone. Or what is? Primarily. Oh, okay. Um, but I played, nice. I played both uh, jazz and then also, uh, you know, like rock. Nice. So actually in college, um, I was uh, playing saxophone, but with effects pedals. So like that, okay. like RSUs basically. So like, you know, delay and reverb. Right, and, right. Um, nice. So uh, yeah, so I played in, uh, in a band that was very, I don't know, uh, uh, or at the time it was, I don't know, um, you know, we had like a guy doing spoken word, <laughs> you know, me, a well. bass player, a drummer. You know, so uh, on guard, yeah, yeah, a little on guard, but it's also like you know, also you know, also loud, um, <laughs> experimental and, to some degree. Yeah, and uh, yeah. that was a lot of fun. Um, nice. But uh, yeah, love music, love reading, um, loved you know the outdoors. Um, 
and uh, yeah, it was you know a small town, you know, like a few thousand people, but a a nice place to grow up. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Do you have siblings, Paul? I have three siblings, well, two sisters and a brother. What rank are uh, you in the birth I, order? I am the youngest one. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah. And um, yeah, and everybody is kind of uh, you know, scattered uh, in different places. Like um, uh, where, where we grew up, that is a place that my parents moved in the 60s to get out of New York City. And okay. so like we, we had no other kind of roots in that area. So basically yeah, we've yeah. already all kind of uh, spread on, in other directions. Left. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so everybody kind of uh, has ended up you know, doing their own thing. So um, yeah, my sisters are both on the East Coast. My brother is in Australia okay. and uh, I'm on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Well, and um, I understand that you, both of your parents have recently passed, so condolences for that. Um, sorry yeah. that you had to, to go through it. Um, challenging time um, for that to happen. Um, but uh, uh, you decided to study at uh, Cornell. Maybe share with us the decision behind doing that. And, and you studied history, which, you know, we kind of kicked off with that so uh clearly it's a pet topic <laughs> yeah. um so yeah it, like wh why uh, cornell you know um grew up <laughs> close to it it was like the known entity in the area mm, for me. yeah um i suppose history because you know to be honest i went in really not knowing what i was going to major in and you know, freshman year, you take a few classes and you know, this and that. Um, and for me to happen to be, you know, some of the classes or some of the professors that I just like enjoyed the most that kind of encouraged yeah. me down that path. Nice. And um, I continue to think of history as, you know, um, you know, both a good subject, you know, to study, say in college, but, uh, but even if you don't, um, certainly an important you know, subject, you know, um, it, uh, you know, it, it, it can, <laughs> if you just like have a passion for, you know, the study of history, it can give you good frameworks for how things unfold or how things are connected. Right. Um, and certainly help explain um, things that might seem a little strange around the world. Right. Or if they don't seem strange, like it might help you understand why they are strange and how they yeah, could have gone. Yeah. But um, yeah, like I, 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 I do kind of share what a lot of people will say about this, you know, the subject. You know, growing up or you know in high school, it was boring. It was like dry. It was just memorizing things and you know, dates and figures. Um, but uh, once you get past, and then that's really unfortunate. Because, like, uh, you know, we end up turning off a lot of people to yeah. subjects, not, yeah. not just history, by the way, like, right. a lot of right. not taught very well. Um, but yeah, if you, I think if you get past that, or even if you just say, hey, I'm going to read, you know, a bit about, you know, this event, or I'm going to read a biography, or I'm going to read, you know, something that um, you know, has like a, or is like set in a historical, you know, era. 
um, you know, the, the great thing about it is it, it starts to like awaken this other uh, appreciation for the world and everybody teaches it differently. And like one of, yeah. one of the fun or I don't know, interesting things that I had found in traveling, you know, internationally anyway, would be if you end up in a discussion about history internationally, it's inevitably going to end up in an argument because everybody teaches, <laughs> like everybody teaches it in a different way. Are we talking about the yes, same? Yes, exactly. Like, That's exactly. not what happened. You know, That's we, right. We never did that. You, know, <laughs> you did that. So, um, and I've heard identifying past. causes for something. No, no, no. It's because you did this or that country did that. No, that's not how it happened. <laughs> I had this experience. Um, so I'd spent, you know, you know, years of my career and also just like, um, you know, uh, for leisure as well. But I spent, you know, years working and, you know, and traveling in, in China and around Asia. Yeah. And I was in, um, I was in Beijing the the week that um, Deng Xiaoping uh, died, or you know when his funeral, oh, held. Yeah. and I and it was a um, basically there was a curfew, you know at like eight p.m. I believe, um, and at that point in Beijing that was like it, it was not as much of a a hopping city as it exactly. Was. But um, I was looking for a place to to go to eat because I had been like you know walking outside the entire day. It was it was very cold. Like everything was shut down, and I saw one you know like one restaurant that was like all the lights were on. It was like packed with people, and like oh, so I, I went in, and like everybody like turns around to look at me, and like everybody is a police officer in the restaurant. <laughs> and, uh, but like like but it was cool. Like I. You know, sit down get a table and I'm talking oh, okay. and um, one of these discussions kind of came <laughs> up about like, the, the Korean War um, and about like you know, what, you know what side had done what and it was very interesting like hearing this from um, obviously they were all too young to have fought you know uh, in in that war but having like learned history in like two different yeah. ways from the Chinese yeah. Years perspective, and um, yeah, like uh, and, and having that kind of uh, that back and forth was um, yeah, but it was also done in a very good-natured you know, uh, you know kind of way. So uh, yeah, you'll you'll see things like that uh, if you have a discussion about history and, and travel. A hundred percent. I mean, gosh, even talking about uh, Pearl Harbor, um, you know, from the American perspective, it's the attack. From the Japanese perspective, it's the invasion. Mm. two very different terms yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or even like uh, in germany talking about world war ii i mean mm. poland describes it as the the invasion germany talked about it at the time as uh securing their port city yeah they were trying to build this road to danzig which is now gdansk and so they mm. didn't they, they thought that was okay because they weren't getting any response from from Poland. It's like, yeah, so it's just the perspective of our approach. Yeah, and, so, and yeah. you know, World War II, I mean, this is just, I know this is a loaded area, but, the, you know, this view of like, there's a, a German mentality around um, being on the wrong side of two world wars. 
Um, but several people looked at World War II and said, oh, well, that was just inevitable, kind of the war of retribution because of what happened in World War I. And I'm certainly not a sympathizer at all. I'm just sort of pointing out the uh, two sides of it. It's no, it is amazing. And, and, and even at the time, you know, after World War One, you know, in the armistice, you know, and the negotiations in Versailles afterwards, like there was yeah, the Treaty of Versailles, yeah. um, you know, that appreciation, I'm trying to remember who said this, but um, that, you know, this is not peace. This is, uh, or th this is, uh, you know, an armistice for 20 years, you know, exactly. basically the way, the way uh, the negotiations ended up going, yeah. in, um, you know, uh, for Germany. Um, but, uh, yeah, like the, the, the different appreciation of that or, um, how, how people become maybe more sensitive to discussing different topics. I, I was in, um, Germany for a wedding a couple of years ago and, um, you know, so I'm at like a, a table of people and there's you know, Germans there, there's uh, a couple Americans, there's you know, a couple of people from other parts of Europe and, um, I heard one person who I believe was also American say to this old German man at the table, he says like, um, I hope this isn't a controversial question. And I'm thinking like, oh no, he's not, is, is, is he going right for it at a wedding? I, like, I hope this isn't controversial, but I wanted to ask you, what do you think of Germany's chances in the World Cup? And I think, oh, like, okay. Like, so, that is controversial as it it's yeah, less controversial yeah exactly exactly but, well you know but it, it seems, like you, you have to be able to discuss these things i mean like you certainly have to be able to discuss it like you know like generations after like these big events but um yeah no it, it's true and um of course because nobody uh, at the moment could have any responsibility same with uh, the chinese police officers having any responsibility for you know the korean war because there's no involvement there but um you know, it's a, I was born in Germany to, to parents of Indian origin, obviously, mm -hmm. but uh, I became very close to uh, people there. And, and mm -hmm. when there was one couple that I got very close to who they were not able to have children, so they kind of adopted me as their son, even mm -hmm. though I was raised by my biological parents. And like her cousin, her first cousin was a part of uh, Project Valkyrie, which was he so he was under Colonel Stauffenberg which wow. made one of the um, assassination attempts against Hitler. And, and he was one of the officers that had to take a pistol to his head when it didn't wow. work. And so, you know, just you hear that perspective and you hear about the brainwashing that was happening in Germany at the time. And um, it's, it's just shocking. And I think, you know, we, we were riveted a little bit by seeing some of those similar phenomena in the US vis-a-vis mm -hmm. um, -vis Trump and, and the kind of outlandish comments and the nonsensical you know, uh, proclamations that, that people are blindly following. It's, it's scary, um, but it's a facet of human nature that um, we just need to be guarding. Yes. So, um, I, I would like to bring the conversation back to you, Paul, because <laughs> you you are the focus. <laughs> Sounds like we could we could talk for a very long time time about this, and you know, don't even get me started about the British Raj in, in India. I have very distinct oh. views about that, of course, and that that and I, I will admit my my bias there. 
Um, and I, I take it out um, in football. Uh, so it's kind of a perfect alignment. I, I was born in Germany of Indian origin. So I have every reason to rag on the England soccer team. And I do it uh, mercilessly. Um, I, my favorite quip for them is that the U.S. will win a World Cup before England wins another one. They hate me for that. <laughs> <laughs> it is such delight to say it. <laughs> yeah, oh, right. that, that must, yeah. yeah. Oh, that really gets him going. <laughs> I just, I, it's such delight. I mean, we're still kind of bitter about 66, um, which is this arcane World Cup reference. But uh, I, again, um, I, I keep uh, derailing us. Let's come back to uh, post-graduating from, from Cornell uh, with the, your degree in history. You started out in management consulting. I, with a little bit of a, a, a interim before. So yeah, I, I first actually worked in New York doing um, uh, helping to take uh, travel guides, like the printed travel guides and putting them on the web. So this oh, wow. is nice. like the early days of, uh, of the web, but basically I had this job of taking, you know, a 400 page book and then turning it into a four page website. Uh, <laughs> But uh, from there, actually, be, I, I didn't do consulting until um, after business school. So um, gotcha. I first worked in telecom. Um, with at and With at and right. Yeah, yeah. So I was doing, this is the, um, the days, like a little before Skype was around. And mm -hmm. um, a lot of telecom innovation, at least modern era, was driven by skirting regulation so the uh, the innovation at that point was in um, getting around a monopoly telco by putting some leg of that telephone call on the internet right. and so like i had like my customers at the time were like uh china telecom you know like the monopoly player sure. and china unicom yeah. the one that had it right. back then like 2% market share. And then some of the other players who started to uh, be issued licenses. And then also, you know, occasionally, you know, somebody who said, well, my uncle is, you know, so-and-so. So I just decided I'm, you know, decided I'm going to start my own, you know, uh, telecom company. And, uh, you know, here it is. We're, we're operating out of, you know, the back of this, you know, uh, nondescript location uh, over here. We're in a swamp uh, in Florida. <laughs> but yeah, well, we will raise yeah. money from the high yield markets. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I had funds, uh, finance. No, it was interesting, like um, at the time. So this is, you know, uh, so I was working, I was based in Hong Kong, but, you know, mostly working elsewhere around Asia, um, which had this, you know, like the, 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 the U.S., you know, um, liberalized its telco market, you know, relatively early. Or, or very early, you know, in, uh, internationally, but um, yeah, in the '90s, early 2000s, like you know, uh, it was not uncommon for there still to be like one monopoly you know, player, and um, we were just kind of going on this trend of, you know, every year there are additional licenses being issued. It's like you know, it becomes a little old-fashioned to have just one monopoly you know, uh, carrier, and uh, like you know, so. When I started, um, the price of a phone call, the official price of a phone call from China to the U.S. was something like a dollar, 
90 a minute or something. Um, this is, you know, 20 years ago. Um, by the time I left, you know, just a few years later, it was, you know, like 10 cents a minute um, <laughs> because most of it had been, you know, was rotted, you know, on the internet for part of the, right. you know, the traffic. Now, of course, it's free. Um, uh, but uh, was, was this the very beginning of uh, voice over IP? It was yeah, just about or um, in terms of it being a commercial product. Yeah, so, gotcha. yeah, so like I, what I was doing was not touching end consumers. It was right. all carrier to carrier. So like you'd sign an agreement to like, okay, I'm going to send like 10 million minutes, you know, this month, you know, from this country to that country, or the, here's the rate if you send, you know, like, you know, this many million, and, you know, here's the other rate if you know, it's in excess of that. And um, the amazing thing, of course, was seeing prices drop from a prohibitive uh, price to like something affordable. All of a sudden, in a, in a handful of years, you saw like just an explosion of usage, people getting access to a phone for the first time, whether it's landline or mobile phone, and um, just how much of an, you know, an effect that had on you know, on businesses, on people being able to stay in touch with relatives or friends. Yeah. So it so was true. a good time to be yeah. there. But um, I mean, India yeah. faced a similar evolution. And what was interesting was that um, a sign of prestige in the early days was having a mobile. But over time, the sign of pre prestige became if you actually had a landline. <laughs> because getting a mobile was so easy it's so cheap anybody and everybody was getting it so um yeah it, it's just fascinating how it, it shifted now share with us paul um where did you learn mandarin and what was the desire the impetus to to do that so i learned uh both at cornell and then also i spent a semester abroad uh, also studying it uh, I was actually, ironically, studying Mandarin in Hong Kong at the time, really not the place that you would go. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. well, did you pick up some Cantonese in your two years oh, of living there? Oh, no, 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 no definitely. Yeah, I, um, I, I've had the, I mean, I like languages, but I've had the advantage. Um, uh, so when I was living in Hong Kong, and I lived there a couple times, um, I had a lot of friends, you know, obviously that I, you know, I worked with or just, you know, other friends from around Hong Kong. So I picked up a good amount. And then when I went back to New York, um, the startup that I had, our office, was actually right on the edge of the Manhattan Chinatown. Uh, oh, yeah. OK. Which, you know, I know exactly um, where that is. Yeah. And, and like, you know, you know, more recently, it's actually it's not so much you know, uh, Cantonese speakers there. Like the Cantonese were some of the earlier immigrants yeah. you know, uh, to, um, to New York. But um, you know, it's more Fujianese and more recently. But, exactly. but there were you know like Cantonese restaurants, and I just got to know them all. And I would just you know, go to the Cantonese restaurant so I could speak uh, to the waiters. Um, That's fantastic. But what a yeah. great way to maintain it. Yeah. No. Um, and uh, whereabouts in Hong Kong did you stay? Because I've been there a few times. Uh, so I always lived on the island side, but nice. um, lived in. Um, uh, Tinhao was one yeah. location. Um, more recently, when we were living there, uh, when I was running the startup accelerator, we lived in uh, Shanghuan. Okay. So, um, but uh, yeah, um, loved living there. 
um, had a great time. Um, you know, it's a very, um, obviously it's unfortunately gone through a number of changes yeah. you know, in recent years um, you know, like after I'd already left, but um, I, I had a, a great experience you know, living and working there. Yeah, no, it always had such a strong um, expat community. Um, and, uh, but yeah, nothing was like those days in the mid to late 90s. Um, uh, I'll, yeah, don't forget the uh, obligatory visit to Lan Kwai Fong, yeah. which, uh, which, which had to happen. And of course, if uh, you were behaved, you went right back to your hotel afterwards. But then there was always somebody in the group who was championing to go to Wan Chai. And you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's going to get ugly. Don't want that. Um, the startup that you referenced, was this, uh, uh, and is it pronounced Chat Fei? That's it. Yeah. So um, yes, it's it's a difficult to pronounce uh, name, which we we learned the importance of uh, names back then. I, I have not personally learned the importance, but it is important to name companies as well. And uh, that was a startup that, um, while we started in a very different direction, what we ended up doing. So this is like 2009, 10, 11. Um, what we ended up focusing on was. Um, solving a specific health you know, uh, question. And it was, you have people who have serious health issues. They are isolated, you know, whether at home or like in some recovery center, um, they're not getting that human interaction that they need. And maybe you know, some of that interaction includes talking to another person who shares a similar experience. So how can you get that to them? Like, because they're not getting everything by like reading on their screen or, you know, watching something passively like, you know, by video. Um, so the solution that we had, and this was kind of uh, drawn out uh, from us by other business customers, but it was basically to work with doctors or support group leaders, have them manage the patient relationships, which they already had. And we just provided the technology on the back end. And it's basically, you know, um, connect those patients to others who are similar to them for a conversation mm -hmm. and a voice conversation. So intentionally kept off, you know, video and you know, things like that and text. And um, at the end of the conversation, we would push out information or a survey or even just how did you like talking to this other person? Uh, or here's our, your health goals for this week, you know, let's work on X, Y, Z. And what we found was, you know, people would talk a really long time, 45 minutes on average to a complete stranger. Wow. Um, made no difference if it was male, female, 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 male, male, you know, like uh, people, in other words, were not like trying to use this for, I don't know, dating or like if you can <laughs> some other interpretation there. Um, but um, it seemed to be satisfying this, like this need of social isolation, especially related to like a health issue, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the relevance of that today is astounding, right? Uh, our yeah. need, desire for connection is all the more stronger because of the pandemic. How many of us are pining to be able to mingle with our friends like we used to? Um, yeah, it's... Um, Wow. Um, and so what ended up happening with that business? Because it's a great concept. 
So I guess technology well, evolved. Technology definitely evolved. And right, so we were doing something that was like, um, now you can build that, you know, in a couple of days with off the shelf tools, right? And that was yeah. all like a unique you know, code that we had written back then. Um, so a number of things happened. Um, one of my uh, founders, the guy who had written most of the code actually, uh, you know, was ill himself, oh. uh, not really able to work to the okay. same degree that, you know, uh, we needed. And, you know, it was an okay business. It wasn't an amazing business at the time. So we kind of let it coast for a while and it did generate some revenue that was just like uh, legacy from, you know, the, uh, the customers that we had. But, um, you know, we, we made just about every mistake possible in, you know, in building it and getting to that point. <laughs> yeah, you know, of course, yeah. retrospect, you know, you, um, you, you think of things differently, but yeah, we, much of the first year was spent on things that really did not matter. Um, like little design issues that we ended up discarding anyway, when we went in a different direction, mm. um, being too careful about releasing it. A lot of the, the things that, you know, now, and I work with a lot of startups, you know, and, and you know, other companies about these issues, like it's, it's very obvious. And for us, you know, going through that process the first time it was not obvious. And so we, you know, we made a lot of those characteristic mistakes. But uh, yeah, like I, I often point to my own experience back then as one of, okay, don't do what I did. This is how <laughs> right. we wasted time. We, right. we, went path. We, we, we didn't give ourselves the opportunity to learn. But um, yeah, so, uh, but, but I, I basically, I, I went from there and I had discovered in doing that, um, that I liked, you know, working with other founders. And so in New yeah. York, in like 2011, I started to run a founder roundtable, and nice. um, something that I was doing on the side really, but um, I kept getting this encouragement to keep doing it. And so I, I did like, you know, uh, I had done the first batch thinking this is a one-off, it's getting encouragement to do it again. So I did like another batch. Then I started to charge for doing it. Mm. Um, and I wanted to make it a bigger part of what I did. And, for me, that seemed to be okay. A natural next step would be, you know, join a startup accelerator or start a startup accelerator. And New York already had about ten startup accelerators in 2011, and I didn't think it made sense to try to build like yet another one. So I was looking for another market to go into, and that's how I ended up thinking back to Hong Kong. And I, you know, took a scouting trip back there, and I basically like I had you know, lost touch with a lot of people, but I like reached out cold to, um, you know, people who I found online in the startup community, uh, went in with, I don't know, five or six meetings, you know, like in place. And then everybody introduced me to like, you know, two or three more people. And so like in a couple of weeks, I ended up meeting, I don't know, 30 or 40 people, which was enough for me to then go back to New York and, you know, keep the discussion going. And, um, from that, you know, uh, took a few permutations, but I was able to then um, like partner with another business that put the money behind uh, a fund, which Wonderful. You know, funded that first startup accelerator in Hong yeah. Kong. Yeah. That's yeah. really great. Um, I just trying to uh, fuse some uh, different uh, 
uh, sort of strings from your, your background. Um, before you left for Hong Kong, is that when you managed to fit in going to business school? Because I know you got an MBA along the way. So, right. So I, I had worked in Hong Kong at two different phases. So the first phase for me was the telecom experience. Then I right. went, then I, actually, then I actually backpacked for a year in Asia and Europe. Uh, but then oh. I went to business school at Columbia. Okay. And then worked in management consulting after that, um, gotcha. and then and then also did the startup, and then after that went back to Hong Kong. Back to Hong Kong. Now, um, I, I just by the way, amazing that you backpacked for a year. That's phenomenal. And um, so the you, you shared how you learned Mandarin at uh, college, um, but I'm just curious, like, what was the was there any particular impetus or desire, or you just felt like, wow, that's going to be a meaningful language to to know in terms of motivation for studying it um you know i'll i'll give my brother credit you know for this because he encouraged me in um in studying you know that as a language it was, was not really a popular language in the yeah. 90s you know to study right. um but um you know in terms of if you think of, you can think of studying a language for many reasons, right? You just enjoy languages or you think I want to live in a certain place or I want to work in a certain context. So um, if you just think of, well, where is there going to be market growth? You know, it's yeah. at that same time, at least in the US, like I think, you know, um, Japanese was still a popular language. Very it's, much, yeah, but, very popular, yeah. Coming off of that, you know, like the booming Japan of the eighties, but, um, probably not where you know, the, the big growth is going to be you know, in the next decade. So, um, but for me, it was also like, okay, it's not only maybe interesting from like a market perspective, but it's also just, you know, an interesting language and, yeah. you know, that it's a tonal language uh, and, that yeah. it, and that it also, you know, does not have uh, uh, you know, the, the um, you know, verb, you know, conjugations, which always would trip me up with European languages. Uh, that doesn't uh, exist uh, in yeah, Mandarin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, you exchange that for the tones perhaps, but um, but yeah, verb conjugations would always be uh, difficult. <laughs> yeah. So, um, they have to be wired in uh, yeah. more memorization than anything. Well, then you can all just imagine the whole case system in German. Um, which, you know, I, I used to make mistakes yeah. in and I feel horrible about it just because I, I'm not using it enough to be able to maintain. Um, but no, that's an uh, excellent point and I totally understand it. I mean, now my, my, two, my two children are learning Mandarin, but it's more uh, popular these days to, to learn it. I've learned a few phrases. Uh, their mom is fluent in it. So oh. uh, yeah, she can be uh, really helpful in, in, in teaching them. Uh, so um, she's, uh, she's born and raised in Singapore. Okay, right. Singapore, I should say. <laughs> the, um, yeah. the interesting thing for me with Mandarin or Cantonese has been that um, the number of times I have spoken some variation of Chinese outside of China, you know, all throughout Southeast Asia, in many parts of Europe, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, Latin America, like in traveling, like, um, yes. because there are so many like Chinese communities that you know, like, you know, emigrated say decades ago or centuries yeah. ago even, um, but you know, speak some form of uh, you know of, uh, of language, and um, 
yeah, it was always interesting to me. Like if I, in traveling, if I couldn't find someone who spoke English for whatever reason, I could always find someone who spoke some type of Chinese. Um, and it, that was like enough, you know, for me to then, you know, be able to communicate. Um, you know, especially like in, in, uh, in many of the places that I would go. Um, but I, yeah, even like I even like had the experience in, in traveling in Japan um, where I uh, was staying in a like a little guest house and not at all being able to communicate with the like the old woman who you know, ran the place. Mom's son. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, um, but realized, oh, why don't I just write in, you know, in kanji, you know, the characters to her. And I know like it wasn't going to be exactly the way that you would do this, say grammatically you know, uh, in Japanese or even like in the choice of the, you know, the, the characters. And I kind of figured like, oh, this is like somebody showing up and like writing something in Latin and, you know, handing it to somebody on the street in the U.S. And like, maybe, okay, I, I, I think I understand what you mean yeah. that way. Um, so uh, yeah, that's, you know, there, there are languages that are, um, you know, that transfer widely or that right. you know, kind of expected that you have some level of proficiency, but then there's also others where, you know, um, there are enough uh, just like little communities around the world that speak them. And like, you know, Chinese is one example of that, of course. Um, and so you can, you can kind of think, you know, think it, it changes the way that you can travel. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's also so fascinating, like, um, I have this thesis that uh, the smaller the country, um, the more likely the residents are to speak multiple languages. And right. I think of Switzerland and I think of Singapore as my, my main examples. Um, the larger the country, the less likely they are to speak a foreign language. So the vast majority of Americans uh, only speak English. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in China, it's a very similar phenomenon. A lot of these business owners that I've interacted with, they hire a translator because they can't be bothered. They don't need to, to learn English. Um, this was really emphatically highlighted back in 2016 when um, we were contemplating living as expats in, in China. So we were looking at either Shanghai or, or Shenzhen. And I remember being at the airport in Shenzhen um, asking um, someone a question, or an employee there in English. And she looked at me very calmly and plainly said, I'm, I'm sorry, could you please speak Chinese? And I thought, <laughs> initially yeah. it took me back, aback and I thought, you know what? How many Chinese travelers yeah. in the US have heard this? Can you yeah. please speak English? <laughs> She's right. I'm in her country. I should be speaking her language. So I, I promptly went and, and and got my wife and I said, can you just figure this out? Because <laughs> I, I can't go beyond Dwebuchi. I, I don't know what else to do here. <laughs> <laughs> like I keep saying Wobudong and she's like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now you had you had been married by the time you went to to Hong Kong, and have you had you you hadn't had children yet though? No, actually, we uh, we were not married when we went to Hong Kong. We got okay. engaged in Hong Kong, uh, but got married after we came back to the U.S. Nice. Uh, and and yeah, didn't have you know kids at that point. 
but uh, but we we do now. We do. Yes. Have these- yeah. Yeah. You've got three. You're uh, officially outnumbered at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go to zonal marking instead of um, man it's, on man. Yeah, but it's, uh, <laughs> but it's fun. It is fun. And, no, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I, that is a, a big thrill. Well, guide us through that uh, return to the U.S. Um, because when you came back, you took on a professorship at USC and uh, became director of their incubator. So, yeah, walk us through what happened there. That was, so uh, we re- re- uh, we relocated to Los Angeles because my wife was going back to school. So she went and did an oh, MBA. Okay. Um, and, I'm sorry, um, uh, it cut out just briefly. She went to do which degree? Oh, oh uh, uh, an MD. Uh, you become a, uh, a doctor. Oh, okay, doctor. okay. At, at USC uh, or? At USC, actually, right. Oh, that's great. And I, um, I had r- really not spent any time in Los Angeles previously. Didn't know anybody here. Um, and again, I reached out cold to a number of people over the time um, after we had moved. And one of those cold outreaches was um, was actually a phone call, a cold call to USC, just wanting to kind of get connected around. And I thought they must have an entrepreneurship department or <laughs> get like you know connected eventually, see what's going on. And um, uh, they were looking for somebody to actually build uh, this program, this, you know, this incubator program. So I kind of showed up at, you know, a coincidental, you know, good time. And, um, and from that, you know, so I, you know, not only ended up, um, you know, uh, being hired to do this program, but I then also ended up, uh, you know, teaching in the department as Amazing. well. And, um, Right, so I've been, you know, uh, been doing that, uh, you know, since uh, 2014. Gosh, last oh. six years or so. And, and how has the teaching been? Have you enjoyed that uh, that term? I do. Yeah, yeah teaching is teaching is um, is interesting. It is a To really be able to teach well, I think it's different from all the other ways of communicating. I, I consider it like a way of communicating, right? But, um, and it's, it's certainly gotten more challenging because everything is remote. But the, yeah, like there's always a balance of, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. When I first started to teach, I kind of had this assumption that, well, okay, we've kind of been having these discussions or we've been doing some, you know, kind of working through some you know, problems and um, we're all kind of on the same page. And then I, I heard from a colleague of mine, this is like shortly after I was hired, like the first semester maybe, um, I heard from this colleague of mine who said, you know, I held a pop quiz in my class, you know, halfway through the semester. We've been talking about these issues for a couple months and everybody failed. And I remember thinking, wow, you must be terrible. <laughs> I'm gonna do the same thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show what really you should be doing. And so I did the same thing, you know, this pop quiz, like five questions, pretty simple. And everybody failed. <laughs> Maybe only 90% failed. And I remember thinking like, oh, I am not actually bringing people along as I expected I was. And 
So it started to change the way I approached trying to communicate. Mm. I still did not do this perfectly, but um, after a while, like so, like what one student of mine ended up saying was, um, "Oh, he kind of uh, about me, like uh, he, he like uh, he kind of uh, tricks you into learning." And that's what I've ended up trying to aspire to. I want to trick people into learning something because wow. I can't just like say something or force it. You know, you're not going to hear it the same way. You're going to ignore it. You're distracted. But if I can trick somebody into learning through this experience, then maybe I've got a better shot. Um, wow. So I, I aspire to do that. And I certainly don't that's always amazing. pull it off. But um well, so can you give us an example of what that would be like? How have you tricked students into learning? I mean, you don't have to give away your secret sauce. <laughs> well, what anybody I think could could try to apply whatever you're doing is rather than, okay, I mean, well, there, there are some things that you just need to memorize, I'll say. Say if it's a formula or if it's, you know, something that is going to be relatively unchanging in context. But then there's others where, you know, like I, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have you like memorize a formula where if I just change the wording slightly, you're lost. So if I want to trick you into learning, I should be able to provide an experience where you can say, okay, I have these things that I have learned how to do, or I've, or if it's even something like discrete, like I'm going to just memorize a formula, right? Um, I have these things that are kind of in my toolkit. And then a new situation arises that you have presented me with, it should like encourage this exploration. And so like right. the, the learning comes from that exploration. Yeah, true. Um, like independent of the discipline, you know, whether it is yeah. you know, entrepreneurship, math, uh, you know, uh, history, you know, um, I think that, that learning comes from that exploration. And obviously like the student also needs to kind of take charge of that. Um, so, you know, the, um, the, so some of the tough things maybe in a, like a remote classroom, you know, setup is it, it can be a little more difficult, I think, to judge who is, you know, following and, and you know, uh, maybe you know, who is, uh, kind of, uh, you know, um, Turn down the volume and is doing something else you know, at home, but um, but I figure like you know the students also need to want to take charge. So yeah. provide the opportunity for them to see. Okay, this experience is valuable. It's also pretty interesting. Um, you know what should I do? And then the other thing I ended up doing specifically in the last six months uh, in the remote classroom experience was. Um, previously, I never really brought many people into my classes, like from the outside as visitors. And I ended up, um, like this semester, I think I brought in one class I taught, I brought in maybe like 10 people over the semester, but specifically wow. to talk about um, their experience in like creating their own career or find like, yeah, you know, nice. Like a, an atypical job search, you know, whether they create their own job or like finding a job, because um, you know, I I think a a big issue for, and, and I tend to have like a lot of seniors or juniors in my classes. Yeah, you know, the way that they are going to do recruiting is different now because of you know because of COVID, both 
in terms of economy and also like it's just remote. So it might shut down some opportunities. It actually might also open up some opportunities. You better be thinking about this now because you can't just wait around for companies to come on campus and you know it's campus recruiting and like you, you hand in a resume. So I've ended up um, like kind of repositioning part of my you know, classes around how do you recruit or create a career mm. in this environment. Um, and there again, you know, that's, I, I think, you know, um, I, I should not be more interested in that than you are, you know, as the, right. exactly. as the job you know, the searcher, but um, right. hopefully there again, I can create this experience that will kind of open your eyes to some opportunities or something yeah. about it. Yeah, that's great. Very inventive. Um, fantastic. Well, and I know that uh, writing is also a very big passion of yours. Um, you've had a number of works, um, case studies you've written, but also articles that have been in Forbes, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, TechCrunch, uh, and also this blog that you have called Unintended Consequences. And so um, share with us, um, how did that come to be? So the unintended consequences blog came literally in one day, one afternoon. <laughs> um, and I had been thinking about this, I suppose, for a while, but I made all the moves, right? Like, you know, at, at once um, when I saw a friend's um, startup kind of you know, go through and I, I'll, I'll, I'll skip that story for maybe another day. But basically uh, some events that had happened with his startup and in like one mov you know, movement, I registered a very bad domain name because it is literally like <laughs> very long words you know, together. Yeah. Like, unintended consequences with the dot before the ES, you know, so it's like very difficult. But, um, you know, I, I just started writing about, you know, systems or why do things turn out differently than we expect? And um, yeah, I've, at this point I've written you know, I think 90 articles on that. And yeah, a number of them have done you know, pretty well. Um, and so, yeah, I have ended up, um, it's both something that I look forward to doing, you know, every week, I, you know, I write once a week. And it's also got me in discussions with people that, you know, previously I was not talking to at all. So like earlier today, I actually had a, a call with, um, a reader of mine, you know, based in the UK, but he's, you know, in the financial services industry and has worked, you know, like you know, at a major bank in risk, you know, assessments. So I've, you know, you know, this writing has kind of opened my eyes to like, there are other applications of, uh, of this, but I've, um, I basically used this, you know, blog as a way to train myself and also learn a lot along the way. And so I've written about everything from, like I, I wrote about, you know, like COVID, you know, very early, you know, in the year, um, you know, written a number of times about autonomous vehicles, about, uh, you know, um, about, you know, policies, uh, about, um, you know, endangered species, um, you know, the, the way, uh, um, you know, technology is used as a, like a, a force in uh, protests, you know, protest movements around the world. Uh, universal basic income, like, you know, many topics that kind of, um, you know, they might have a certain intent when they are created. Um, 
but they also open up this other exposure, whether it is good or bad, you know, upside or downside, you know, risk. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, to me, it's a fascinating topic that has no shortage of, uh, of subjects to, uh, you know, to look into. Oh, it's so true. Yeah, it's um, it's so all-encompassing that uh, you know you can find it in just about any discipline, any uh, area of inquiry. So uh, well done in terms of, of that regard. You will have an, an almost infinite supply of material to to choose from. So, um, and and thankfully for us, your audience, your readers, um, I've definitely enjoyed uh, several of the articles that uh, that you've posted. So, thank you for doing those. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your time uh, in Vatican City. Sure, uh, this was a very unusual experience. So, 2017, um, I was contacted about. Uh, so I've mentioned the accelerator in Hong Kong and the one at USC. I was contacted about a uh, third startup accelerator that was being set up. Um, and so I was you know, basically hearing about this, you know, out of nowhere, um, you know, the, the Vatican is going to have a startup accelerator, right? And I thought, okay, this is an elaborate prank. This is, a, this is like, <laughs> the Pope is not in a yeah, even this Pope is not going to do that. Um, and uh, it was real, right? Uh, and I think they, they appreciated kind of the international work that I had done. And also the, like a lot of the, a lot of what I have written about startup related, you know, because um, I also write about startups, but a lot of what I've written about there was um, how do non-tech hubs, you know, around the world actually stand out or work on what's important or how do you develop communities and yeah i i have you know in the course of working i've spoken to like you know many people in you know parts of the world that you would not think of at all as a startup community but they are doing something and it looks very different from what you would see in silicon valley and it and it should so um i was very happy to be like asked to come in and help lead this program which is called um, the uh, Laudato Si, you know, Startup Accelerator. Mm. And um, the purpose behind it was to help environmental tech get into parts of the world where it could be uh, well used. So talking about, again, like, you know, emerging economies around the world. Um, and we ended up, um, so the Vatican did not invest money. <laughs> you know, um, okay. You would, you would not want them also, of course, investing in startups, but, uh, <laughs> but, they, but they lent a lot of the, you know, call it the social impact perspective. So yeah. um, our main contact there was a cardinal who, you know, um, he's from Ghana and was very good at kind of, um, you know, like, you know, we had companies, for example, that would do everything from, you know, water filtration, uh, solar power, uh, yeah waste, you know, like you're processing agricultural products. So like, how do you get distribution into like a, re a remote village market where like the, there isn't really a good road that goes in yeah. and like, yeah. you need to be able to carry something over like, uh, like a trail, uh, yeah. you know, to get access. And like a, a lot of that was um, really good perspective. But um, uh, 
very interesting time, you know, doing this, not only because of the location, but um, yeah, we, we brought in 12 companies, you know, from um, Uganda, you know, uh, Italy, um, China, uh, India, Ecuador, uh, the US, um, you know, I'm, I'm missing a few locations um, where, uh, you know, the theme was environmental tech in one way or the other that could yeah. be deployed to, you know, a part of the world that could uh, benefit, you know, from that. Um, so I like the concept, like I like the ability to take like this longstanding institution, you know, whether it's religious, cultural, or, you know, whatever, but like this longstanding institution, combine it with something, you know, modern or on the tech side. And, mm. you know, in theory, you can make something different come out of that. So, um, yeah, so I like, I like that kind of approach. Um, and uh, yeah, had a, had a good time, you know, uh, uh, again, got to bring my family to live in Rome for a month, you know, Amazing. on that program and that was a good time. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, um, how long were you there? Less than a year or so? Oh, no. So, sorry. So, uh, the program lasted longer, but I was only able to be there for one month, like on site. Oh, okay. But so you were, but you were working on it remotely. But, right. Before I left, yeah. in terms of yeah. processing the applications. Sure, and sure. People yeah. And, yeah. And afterwards. Right. But, um, wow. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Paul, this has been such a great conversation. I uh, really appreciate all the wonderful shares that you've done. Loved talking to you about all of this. Yeah, and as did I. I really enjoyed it. I mean, clearly we could go down a number of pillars and have this conversation go on until, you know, 2021 easily. <laughs> it's funny, like, because um, I've been doing a number of these podcasts, you know, certainly Corona era, you know, I've been doing a number of these and I'll connect with, you know, an old friend on, because like, you know, they, they also have a podcast. You know, I've done this a few times now with old friends and it's interesting. And I end up, I end up coming away thinking like, you know, if we had met up in person, um, we would have ended up like drinking a couple of bottles of wine as well, of course, right. but, exactly. but I, but, it, but it, this, like this context, it almost forces us to like a lot of stories that, would have taken years to come out <laughs> if yes. we were meeting yeah. up you know, here and there. Like, exactly. like oh, ah, this is like it's a nice way to kind of reconnect. And yeah, uh, yeah for I mean, I, uh, I I appreciate what you're doing. You know, in, thank you. In you know, and I and I appreciate the opportunity, of course, to like to, to speak to you and your listeners. But um, yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed talking to you today. And so many so many you know memories uh, came out you know, from this. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's great. Um, I'm thrilled to hear that.